Hey guys, it's Brandon from the MacroOps Value Hive podcast. Thanks so much for listening. This week, I talked to Brett Bivens of TechNexus. Brett is an investment researcher at TechNexus and author of the popular Substack Venture Desktop. Brett and I spend over an hour discussing empowerment loops, what makes Nike great, the economics of Stripe's business model, as well as enablers versus growers, and how to identify underrated markets. This was a lot of conversation, and I had a lot of fun talking to Brett. He's actually recording from an Airbnb in the mountains of France, so please excuse any audio miscommunications that you may hear. Please enjoy the show. This episode is brought to you by Ticker. Ticker.com is focused on bringing institutional-level investment research to you, the individual investor. Ticker.com is powered by S&P Global Capital IQ and has coverage of over 50,000 stocks globally with financial data, estimates, valuation metrics, ownership percentages, transcript filings, news, and more. ValueHive listeners can join Ticker's free beta trial today at ticker.com forward slash hive. That's T-I-K-R.com forward slash hive. All right, Brett Bivens, thanks so much for coming on the show. Uh, just as a quick background, who are you? What do you do for a living? And how'd you get into France? Sure, yeah. So uh, thanks a lot for, for having me on, uh, first of all. So um, yeah, my, my name is Brett. I uh, currently work as an investor at a Chicago-based firm called TechNexus, as you alluded to. Uh, I'm based over here in France. Um, you know, I guess my... Uh, my journey to TechNexus, so to speak, was was largely through uh, working in startups. So uh, after after graduating college, um, took my sort of finance degree and, and went went into banking. After about a year of that, a year and a half of that, I sort of came to the realization that um, that you know that sort of large corporate environment for one wasn't something that I was super keen on continuing with. And at the same time, I'd become pretty enamored with what was happening in the technology industry and, and the technology ecosystem with uh, the, the impact that large companies were, were starting to have the Amazons and Apples and Googles. And this was about a, a decade ago. And, and then tying that back to sort of what was happening in the early stage world. Um, and so sort of set out to try to get more involved in that market and get more involved in that ecosystem. And so that led me uh, on, a, on a series of sort of opportunities within uh, early stage startups and uh, helping launch and build and, and grow early stage startups across a number of different uh, categories. So e-commerce and enterprise SaaS and uh, things in the sports space. And so a handful of companies. And, um, and so at, at a certain point, I, as much as I love that, I had sort of um, I loved the the idea of working across all those different companies, working with a bunch of different businesses, and uh, and so that led me to, to the investing side, um, and that's what sort of got me really interested in investing. The opportunity to work with a number of different companies at the same time to have this broad perspective across the entire ecosystem, and and that's what led me to TechNexus. Um, and you know, happy to talk more about sort of what TechNexus is and what it does. But you sort of mentioned the the France piece, and uh, I moved over here about two years ago to uh, launch our European office and to head up all of the investing and uh, portfolio company support and all those different things uh, for for our firm here in France. So that's kind of the the quick uh, quick and dirty background and overview um, on kind of me and, and how I got to to this point. Yeah, let's dive. Let's dive right into TechNexus. So, what is it? What's what's you know what's what's the firm's goal and 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 how do you fit in there? I know you said portfolio, you know, company company supports. Like, what is what's that look like for you on a day to day basis? Yeah, absolutely. So, so TechNexus is uh, based in Chicago and has really been 
you know, since the beginning of the Chicago tech ecosystem, one of the, one of the key players. So sort of started out as an incubator uh, focused on helping companies start, helping companies grow, helping companies um, work more effectively with, with large corporates that they were trying to build relationships, build relationships with. And so that's always been sort of at the core is very early stage companies and sitting at the intersection between the early stage market and the corporate world. Um, I think Chicago specifically in sort of, you know, many cities globally, but Chicago specifically has a ton of uh, large companies, middle market companies, sort of old industrial businesses uh, operating in traditional industries who uh, one are, you know, seeing their own kind of businesses disrupted and, and blown apart by, you know, technology, early stage companies, et cetera. And two, we're looking to, to work more effectively with those companies. And so that's sort of where we come in uh, to the equation. We've evolved the business quite significantly over the years. And, and what we do today is uh, build sort of vertical focused innovation funds uh, that are primarily backed by different corporate partners in different verticals. So we'll go and spend a ton of time with, uh, you know, one corporate in a specific market or a handful of corporates in a specific market, really get to know that uh, the dynamics of that industry extremely well, get to know the internal cultures of those corporate partners that we're working with extremely well. And then we'll sort of say, okay, great. We know that this is important to this company and to this market, the company, the large corporate knows that uh, kind of working more effectively with early stage companies and having skin in the game, having a seat at the table with those companies is important as well. So let's actually go and put that into practice. And so that's where we build these early stage funds that are uh, focused on going out and investing in what we believe will be the most important companies in those specific verticals, those specific categories, and then pairing that with a team that we have internally that we've developed that is focused on post-investment collaboration between the startups that we back and the corporates that we work with. So that's kind of the, uh, the sort of focus that we have today. I mean, to, to date over the last four or five years, we've uh, in uh, all across the U S all across Europe uh, in categories ranging from sort of audio and media and, and video is a big one enterprise collaboration is is a big piece of what we focus on we do a lot of industrial market uh, focus as well so things around iot and supply chain and machine intelligence and all these different categories are, are pretty important for us and so so that's kind of tech nexus and what we do um personally uh, i'm on the investment team at tech nexus so i spend a lot of time uh working with entrepreneurs uh pre and post investment uh sort of you know the the entire process so how do we how do we source new investment opportunities? How do we decide uh, on making new investments? How do we uh, win those opportunities and, and make it clear to the founders that, uh, that they should be working with us because of the value that we hope to provide for them? And then how do we create that value for them uh, after the investment, both through our corporate network and through other ways that we try to support them as, as a firm and as individuals? That's gonna be a great segue into this first idea, which was your post the merits of bottoms up investing. So for those listening, what I'm going to do is I'm going to break down our conversation based on my favorite posts from Brett's Substack, And we're, we're going to link because your Substack your sub stack is awesome. And so we're going to link this in. It's a fantastic oh, read. And you mentioned, you know, you're on, you're on the investment team. So you're involved in that early decision-making process. You know, how do we look at companies? How do we source ideas? And this leads right into this idea of bottoms up investing, where from my, from my background, when I'm coming in and I'm looking at venture, I'm looking at early stage, 
my initial thought is everything's top down. Everything is, let's look at the next five to 10 years, kind of like what you said, let's look at the next five to 10 years, see what the coolest, not, not trends, but like coolest themes going forward, what we think are going to be the biggest companies. But then you kind of flip this on your head and you say, actually, you know, we should take a look from a bottoms up perspective. So talk to us about the post, um, why you, why you decided to write it and then just kind of the motivation behind it. Yeah, absolutely. So, you know, I've, I've sort of been a, I would say student of, of venture capital and a, a student of all the different ways that different investment firms operate in, in this market. And I think you're right. I mean, I think there's this, this tendency to um, sort of think about venture capital as this, uh, you know, these, these people who sort of see the future and, uh, and then go out and allocate capital towards, towards that future that they believe is going to exist. And I mean, that's, that's absolutely true to, to a very large degree. Um, I think especially the earlier that you get, the closer the investors are to the actual formation of the company, the, the closer they are to that real kind of entrepreneurial mindset where uh, they are, uh, you know, take, you know, long-term perspective on, on the future of the company. And, and there's always that need to have some kind of a perspective on the way that the future is going to unfold. But I thought bottoms up investing was a, a really interesting, um, sort of, I guess, element of, of the, uh, of the benchmark investing process and, and something that clearly made them a little bit different from other firms in, in the market. Um, I think something that, has always struck me as quite interesting about Benchmark is, you know, they're a, a Series A investment firm, um, but they seem to be extremely tapped into what's happening at every layer of the market. So they're not just looking at Series A companies. Um, you know, they're not just looking at what's coming from the stage just before them and then looking at how can I pass this company off to some Series B investor who's going to mark up my initial investment and help me go raise another fund. Um, mm -hmm. They They really... Kind of take a holistic perspective at what what is happening across the technology industry from the earliest stages to the public markets and i think a lot of that stems from uh, bill Gurley's sort of formative years in equity research and i guess the perspective that that he sort of developed there um and of course i think they've just been around for so long and had so much success that they just kind of naturally end up having investments in companies that hit the public markets um and in their case one of the interesting things is how long the partners there seem to stay on boards. They, you know, they right. invest early and they stay on the boards of companies um, until that late stage. And, you know, I think that's, again, that's sort of not common for a firm that's as small as benchmark in terms of the number of people that they have. Uh, again, I think a lot of early stage firms are sort of saying, Hey, we're, we're here for this one step of the journey for this company. And, and then we're going to kind of pass that off to, to another uh, investor or investment firm to, to kind of take up the helm. Um, and so they, they've just been very different. I mean, I think you see, you see firms take this approach of, you know, investing across the entire stack of the venture capital industry from early stage to growth stage. But the way that they tend to do it is by building teams to focus on those different categories and um, growing their assets under management and growing their headcount and all these different things, whereas benchmark has stayed very, very small. And so I think just the nature of the firm, the way that they, the way that they kind of operate um, is, is just different than, than most others in the market. And that kind of drew me to them. And, um, and yeah, that, that was kind of the, the interesting thing that I think stuck out about the way that they approach things. 
I like the idea you mentioned in the post about the purpose or, or the power of purpose over trend, which I just think is a, it's a, it's a, it's a great little moniker. And you, you, you relate that to the fact that benchmark doesn't invest in what's trendy or fashionable. And so kind of, kind of, kind of take us through that. Um, you know, just, just in terms of that lens, do you think it's a function of their culture or, you know, do you think, you know, again, going back to my preconceived notions of venture, it's like you invest in what's trending towards what's going to be in the future, if that makes sense. Yeah, no. And I think there's, there's definitely an element of that that's sort of unavoidable or that's kind of inherent in, in the venture capital model, which is there's, there's this, you know, for better or worse, there's this, there's this reflexivity um, to, to the way that that market operates. And that's true of every market, but you know, it's, it's certainly true in, in the venture capital space where, um, you know, a company can, you know, ride some kind of narrative that exists in the marketplace, attract good investors on, on sort of the back of that narrative and that hype cycle, you know, that creates this, this effect of, um, bringing in, you know, more capital downstream or, uh, talent, or, or it sort of just becomes this, this thing that builds on itself and grows, uh, regardless of maybe the merits of, of the, com- the underlying company and the quality of the underlying company. And sometimes that works and sometimes that doesn't. Um, and I think what, you know, to do what a lot of investors uh, try to do is, um, yeah, is, is sort of stay, stay above that narrative or at least one, know what that narrative is. Know kind of the, all of these different sort of stories and narratives that are, uh, that are or another um, but not be tied to them to really focus instead on sort of the entrepreneur that's sitting in front of you, what that entrepreneur is telling you, what evidence they have to back up uh, their belief and their vision for the future that's coming down the road. And really using that as the primary lens to, to look at things through versus uh, taking sort of the, the out, maybe call that the inside out approach. Like what's this, what's this founder uh, telling me that uh, about the future that, that I can, you know, start to believe and then take that outwards and say, okay, how does that tie to, uh, you know, different, um, underlying, you know, things that exist in the market and, and the competitive landscape and things like that. And, you know, technologies that are uh, going to converge and, and develop and create a market for this product. Whereas the outside in perspective of that would sort of be to, to take a little bit of that, uh, over, overemphasize or over index on that hype and over index on, um, what others in the market are kind of talking about and veering towards and then letting that uh, influence the decision more so than kind of that entrepreneur and that team that's sitting in front of you building the product, building the company. Do you think that that inside out approach is more attractive in the sense that it requires less, I guess, intensive work where if you can just say like, oh, here's a trend and let's just invest in the trend. Whereas the outside it, or, or I'm sorry, the outside in approach where it's like, you're seeing the trend and then you go in, whereas the inside out approach is almost like, okay, you're starting like from the founder's level. And it really takes a lot of skill then at that point to just understand the founder and their dream. And it's, and it's, and it's a much harder bet than just saying, okay, we're going to invest in this thematic because now you're saying, all right, we're going to invest in this person in this company. Right. Yeah, no, there probably is. And there's sort of this, there's the, the reputational angle to it as well, where it's like, yeah. Hey, if you're, you know, if you're going to invest in the second or third or fifth or seventh um, kind of scooter company that, that raises a huge round of capital or, you know, name a, name a hot market that's sort of come and gone or, or come and persisted, I guess, even um, over the last few years in the venture space, uh, you sort of have this, you know, almost plausible deniability to, to your LPs and to, to the market as a whole. And you can sort of say, well, yeah, we, you know, we, we may have been wrong about that, but so were so many other people. Um, and yeah. so you sort of 
comfort yourself in that fact. Whereas I think the other approach that you sort of mentioned does, does sort of um, lend itself to a bit more of a maybe reputational risk. Um, you know, certainly not as much of a kind of, you know, investors are, are never kind of taking the type of risk that a founder is. Um, they're, they're sort of putting their entire, you know, their entire reputational stake, often their entire financial stake in the, in the, in one company. Um, but it, it sort of gets closer to that. It sort of emulates that a little bit more. It's, it is a little bit about that, you know, it's, it's, uh, probably lends itself a bit to being, um, more of a, a contrarian perspective on, um, how companies are going to develop. Right. Now, at the end of that article, you made a shift towards complexity investing. And I think it's NZS Capital that has that mm -hmm. white paper. Okay. Yeah. So I, that's, that, that's something I actually need to go and read. But you mentioned, you, you mentioned the idea that good complexity can't be made. It has to grow from a simpler state. And this had a huge impact on Bill Gurley and the way that they invest at Benchmark. So take us, take us through that, that, that idea that good complexity can't be made. It has to grow from a simpler state. And then also talk about this idea of seeing Venn diagrams that others don't in relation to Stitch Fix and Yelp. Yeah, absolutely. And I think, you know, I would probably caveat everything that I've sort of said so far and everything that, that I'm about to say that every, every company in every early stage venture that's growing is, is sort of idiosyncratic. It's its own, it's its own thing. And so, um, you know, not every, not every case kind of fits every, every rule or there's right. not one, one overriding case that, that you can fit it to. But, you know, I, I think that there's a, there's a really interesting sort of phrase that, that Bill Gurley uses that I think uh, applies really well to this idea of building complexity from the ground up over time versus, yep. uh, versus trying to um, just bring to life this, this kind of complex, massive global beast of a company. Right. Um, and he, he calls it liquidity quality, early liquidity quality, um, which I think is, is really interesting. So it's this idea that, you know, instead of trying to go extremely broad as a company in the early days, uh, instead of trying to pour a bunch of capital onto maybe a promising idea, but something without solid foundations, um, you, you know, you instead look at this, these early cohorts of users, these early markets that you're in, and really try to prove out that there's liquidity, whether that's in a marketplace or there's sort of liquidity of usage uh, in, in a product uh, that you sort of have this high degree of uh, engagement, of retention, of all of these signals that point to strong foundations that, mm -hmm. that you can then sort of pour the gas on with, with venture capital, with aggressive growth approaches, things like that. Um, and, you know, I, I think it's, again, it's something that is, when's the right time to, to sort of shift from that mode of let's generate early liquidity to let's really grow this thing. It's probably different for every business, but I think it's a really useful kind of heuristic to have in mind um, and to know sort of what, what is implied for each individual business by early liquidity. Um, and then that's, that's kind of how you can maybe gauge and understand the steps from, you know, complexity layer number one to complexity layer number two to complexity layer number three for each individual business. Um, so right. I think that that's, you know, that's something that I think is, is really interesting. And he uses a few examples in that, which is, uh, you know, companies like Stitch Fix, companies like Yelp, who, you know, for, for one reason or another, took this approach, you know, Stitch Fix, a uh, company that had, you know, really great sort of word of mouth growth that indicated that, you know, despite the fact that it wasn't global, it wasn't massive at the time, um, there was something there, there was a, a seed of, of value there that was being created for 
these users that could then be maybe extrapolated to, to a broader audience with a little bit of capital. Um, same thing with Yelp where, you know, they were seeing in early markets, uh, really, really great kind of engagement from users, uh, really strong retention of those users. And they focused on that initially, um, and sort of did the dirty work on the ground, I guess the, the Paul Graham things that don't scale kind of, uh, yeah. phrasing to, to really make sure that they could prove out in an initial market or two that the service and the value proposition was valid and useful and important. And then. And then once they were able to prove that out, they were able to go broader with, with the offering via, you know, via capital and, and things like that. So I think that's, that's kind of one element of it. And again, it's, it's sort of like there's soft edges around all of these things. Again, there's no hard, fast rule of like, Hey, this is, this is the exact thing that indicates that you have early liquidity quality. And this is the yeah. exact point where there's an inflection and you can say, Hey, let's just throw a bunch of capital on this and, and grow. Um, but I think these are just like useful, uh, useful models to keep in mind as, as companies are progressing as, um, as you're evaluating a company from the outside. Yeah. I mean, if it was, if it was that easy, I guess there'd be no alpha left for, for, for any ventures, right? You would just wait till that, (laughs) you would, you would, you would just wait till that inflection point. Um, one of the, one of the other binges that I've been on. So, you know, I've been on a uh, Bill Gurley binge, um, trying to go through all of his old, um, you know, blog posts and stuff like that. Another binge that I've, that I'm on is Matthew Ball's content. And Mm -hmm this idea of the metaverse. Now, Matthew, he refers to the metaverse in terms of video games and that, that kind of Fortnite like, like metaverse, but your post on the metaverse of health really struck me as, as, as something interesting because I feel like that's a crossroads of two huge trends where you've got this consumer health trend where people are trying to, you know, take more agency for their own health. And there's companies now that are allowing these people to take agency of their health and really, really nail down, you know, the biomarkers and the trackers, but also this metaverse idea surrounding health. So there, you, you, you mentioned seven key attributes of this metaverse for, for, for health. And, you know, let's just, let's just start there and go and go down the list and then tell us about some companies that are trying to create and foster this metaverse within health. Yeah, absolutely. And, and, you know, I think I'll, I'll echo your, your comments about Matthew Ball and and the work that he does. It's, it's quite impressive and it's been pretty formative in helping me understand uh, a, a lot of different things in in gaming and in media and and beyond because I think what he talks about as as you just mentioned with with regards to health is is quite applicable beyond that uh, beyond that world. So you know I think one of the things that that he talked about and this is yeah we've invested in companies um, in sort of the health and wellness space for quite some time. It's an area that I'm personally very passionate about as an investor and as a user of of these products. And one of the comments that he made in one of his pieces was you know, the end game for all of the big tech companies is the metaverse, whether it's Apple, whether it's Google, whether it's Amazon, they're sort of always looking for what's the, what's the successor to, to the internet? What's right. sort of the, the next step that's going to create, I mean, trillions of dollars, given how big these companies are, are trillions of dollars of, of value for billions and billions of people um, that creates kind of this, you know, and we can go through, go through all the attributes, this, this world that is kind of persistent, that sort of stays with us, um, you know, 24 hours a day that that's synchronous and live, um, that is, you know, not capped by any number of people that are being involved in the experience, um, you know, has this digital economy, or not even digital economy, but you know, this, this economy that uh, spans the physical world and the digital world. Um, and then offers, you know, this really kind of, this is a very important piece, um, 
kind of interoperability across all of these different things as you're thinking about immersive worlds and immersive experience, you know, uh, there needs to be, you know, really, really um, seamless, you know, identity verification and um, all of these different things that allow you to stay immersed in that world and, and not be um, hindered by, you know, technical challenges and, and all of that. And then the other piece is sort of this, you know, it does seem real in the sense that it's created and operated and managed and has people, a wide range of contributors involved in, in the creation of all of that. And so putting sort of his list together of those different factors and combining that with the idea of, hey, all the big tech companies are going after that, it seemed pretty logical that one of the pieces of that metaverse will be health um, and will yeah. be sort of, you know, all those big companies are investing so much money into uh, personal wellness, per personal health. Uh, you look at the Apple Watch and Apple Health and everything that they're doing there. Uh, you see what Amazon has recently announced with, uh, with their products, um, Google buying Fitbit. Like those are all kind of baby steps in this direction of um, building products that, uh, you know, have you know, seamless identity, understand who we are, understand these different uh, things that are going on in our life on a regular basis. Mm -hmm. And, and so those kind of came together to say, okay, one of the big kind of things of the metaverse of health, if we believe that it's not just going to be this video gaming environment, but it's going to be this thing that uh, really is, is deeply integrated into the way that we live is that health will just undoubtedly be be a big part of that. So yeah. that's kind of how I came to to the idea of that and 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 kind of got on that on that line of thinking. So then talk to us about this idea of what you call the third generation of health which is precision precision wellness. And then this is this is where these companies get into get into the conversation. You know, we've got Whoop, future.fit, Tonal or a Pivot. Um, you know, what are what are what are some of these companies doing that are precisely attacking this precision wellness, this third generation of health? Yeah. Um, so, you know, I think the when I reference the third generation, the first two generations that sort of come before that, or maybe what we've experienced over the last, you know, call it 10 or 15 years, uh, initially from kind of this quantified health perspective that was really only for super early adopters, people that, you know, were using early Fitbits and things like that to kind of just track everything that they were doing. Mm -hmm. And we're just really, really motivated to understand what was going on, but it just wasn't quite ready for prime time. There wasn't the sort of engagement and retention hooks to keep people coming back. Um, and so that's how kind of the, the transition to that second generation happened, which is all about content and community and, you know, things that Peloton obviously has, has grown into to becoming a massive company that has yeah. shown that, you know, with great content and with a community, um, you can drive really great retention and really great engagement. And so, you know, what's, what sort of comes next? How do you layer the, the tracking that we've had with this community and content into something that creates, you know, dozens more multi-billion dollar companies uh, or, you know, in the case of these large companies, creates billions and billions more value for them. And that's kind of this third generation, which is, you know, these, you know, let's, things like passive monitoring, um, things like the ability to uh, scale experts so that you can provide sort of one-to-one -one coaching at a global scale, um, the, uh, the ability to create more immersive experiences uh, that, you know, that uh, utilize things like computer vision and other types of biometric feedback to, to create those experiences for you. So sort of how do we apply all this technology to some of the great ideas and products that have been built over the last five years to create these new businesses going forward. And that's where some of those companies that you mentioned come in. Um, you know, a company like Whoop that's that's really doing that uh, passive biometric uh, tracking and, and then using that to create sort of 
uh, smarter feedback for users to uh, drive, you know, training regimens to help you improve things like sleep, uh, to give you early notification on things like illness. I think that's one thing that we've seen throughout the COVID crisis is companies like Whoop and Aura Ring um, mm-hmm. using their, their sort of deep biometric understanding of their users and that longitudinal data set that exists to, um, to do early warning for, for illnesses. And so I think, you know, that's an example of one company there. FutureFit, who you mentioned, um, is, is a company that is sort of doing that sort of one-to-one coaching at scale, giving uh, on one side, giving coaches the, uh, the tools to work with, you know, tons of different uh, end users, clients, and, and then on the other side, um, kind of giving the, the end user a, a smarter interface to create accountability, which is an important part of this, and just a smarter, uh, a smarter experience. Um, and then I think the other ones that you mentioned, you know, Tonal, which is a, a portfolio company of ours, we're small investors there. And then a company like Pivot are, are sort of using some of those more advanced technologies, computer vision, uh, electromagnetic um, training systems, all these different all these different things to create more data, uh, which can then be fed back into create smarter kind of feedback loops for for users. And so none of those products today really feel like the metaverse. I mean, it doesn't, you know, when I'm explaining those things, tonals this electromagnetic weightlifting system that, that sits on your wall, kind of looks like a really nice TV Yep. pivots this really cool weightlifting system that uses computer vision or ring or things that sit on your wrist and your hand future fits a, an app that none of those things feel like uh you know this this gaming environment this immersive uh metaverse kind yeah. of thing but they are i think precursors to that as you start to think about all of the different kind of factors that are going into that and and just continuing to push the ball forward on uh, knowing more about ourselves and and being able to translate that into experiences that engage us to keep us healthier and happier and and all of that. Right, and it's you know you can you can you can look at you can look at video games and even before Fortnite, it's you know Call of Duty was just a place where you played games against each other. It wasn't this environment where you go and there's a creative mode and now people go to hang out and and it's and it's you know you've got Marshmallow doing right. concerts and so you know it's this idea that that we could, we could probably see that in health. And so is the, is, is the end goal for most of these companies, just the data and kind of the uh, anonymous data that it generates? Is that, is that where the value is or, 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 or is it something else? Yeah. I mean, I think it's more than that. Um, I think the data is a key element for any of these companies. You know, I think you can, you can look at a, I mean, let's take one example and look at a company like Apple, Um, everything that they're doing in health, everything that they're doing in, financial services, um, all of that kind of comes together to create sort of this, this metaverse within itself of, you know, you live in the Apple ecosystem, you, uh, you know, everything that you do, you've got this seamless identity that goes back and forth, whether you are wanting to understand your health or whether you're wanting to make a payment, um, you sort of have this like seamless experience that exists across all of these uh, core elements of your, of your daily life. And so I think the data is a key piece of it to enable some of those things around, again, seamless, seamless identity and security, um, safety, all of those, all of those different elements, but each company seems to have, you know, a different approach for how they, how they kind of want to, to go about that. I mean, Apple's is going to be to continue to obviously sell devices that, uh, that start to take up more and more of that, uh, that experience. You know, Amazon has the, the commerce element to what they try to do. So each of these companies has kind of a different North Star, um, but probably approaching, approaching this in a different way and using that data in a different way to, to serve that, uh, that core business. 
Yeah, and what what are what are some of the risks that you see with this precision based metaverse of healthcare? Whether it's whether it's regulatory, whether it's you know personal privacy, as 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 you kind of just mentioned. Yeah, I mean, personal privacy is a is certainly a big one. Um, you know, that's that's why a company like Apple does seem so well positioned because they've done a good job uh, at building consumer trust in the past. Um, Amazon as well, I think, has a lot of consumer trust. So it's it's certainly a big concern. How do you make sure that uh, you're you're respecting respecting the privacy of users? That was one thing that you saw come out a lot with what Amazon is doing now, using uh, vocal signals and vocal cues to understand the emotional health of users. Um, how do you, in the same way, how do you protect people using Alexa? How do you protect people in that sense as well? So right. I think right. that's just going to be a constant question, and any company building in this space has to constantly be on guard of not only how are you. Asking adding value to users, but how are you protecting them from some of these adverse effects that, um, that can exist? And then, you know, I think the other, the other piece of it, and this is, you know, this is extremely important if, if you know, these technologies, these products are truly going to make a, an impact on the mass market, is how do, you, how do you distribute those products that are today extremely expensive, that are, you yeah. know, even, even a product like, you know, Peloton, uh, $14 a month to have the digital subscription or, you know, $60 a month to, to have the bike, like th that type of experience is still just not accessible to, um, to a broad swath of the population. And so how do you make sure that you're being equitable in the way that you're providing access to, to all of this and, uh, you know, creating that interoperability for, for people who, maybe don't have the money to say, Hey, I'm going to live in the Apple ecosystem and I'm going to buy a new iPhone every year and a new yeah. Apple watch and, you know, a new Apple home so that everything in my life works seamlessly together, but who are sort of like, you know, patching their, their life together and trying to figure it out. How do you make sure that you're providing uh, the right type of value, making it accessible to those types of people? So I, I like, and those, by those types of people, it's billions and billions of people. So yeah. it's, you know, and, and it's like, how do you, how do you make that work? And that's something that definitely has not been solved um, by, by any of these companies yet. So um, that'll be a big, a big piece of it as well. It's just accessibility um, for, for most of the world. Yeah. I mean, I think the aura ring is what, like 400, almost 400, 500 bucks just, just mm -hmm. for the ring. So yeah, yeah right. I mean, it's, 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 it's tough though, because I can see how these companies would say, well, you know, what, what price can you put on your health? And then you kind of get into this moral, argument where it's like, you know, you can't really put a price tag on your health. And then you kind of bait people into this, you know, price taking mode, where mm -hmm. if you if you really value your health, you would want to spend that much money. So I just I just I just think it's kind of that, that that interesting dynamic. The next article I want to go into is your topic on empowerment loops and enablers versus growers. And it's kind of this, you know, this, this, this big framework. So, so, so we'll kind of break it into chunks here. Um, I want to, I want to flesh out the empowerment loops segment first. And so for those that don't know, or haven't read the article yet, what is an empowerment loop? And can you give us an example, maybe through Nike, Figma, TikTok sort of thing? Yeah. I mean, I think the, the core and all those companies seem very different, right? Like Nike's this, this apparel company, um, TikTok, this yeah, digital uh, media company and Figma, uh, a design tool, essentially. Um, but I think what, what all those companies have in common and what any company that has these sort of empowerment loops has in common is that uh, through their sort of core offering and through the, the way that they've structured the incentives that exist in their go-to-market strategy, their product, their marketing, they sort of expand the market for who is enabled to do a certain activity. So you take Nike and it's sort of all their marketing and everything that they do is all geared towards 
how do we expand the market for who is empowered to be an athlete? Um, yep. for, for Figma, it's, you know, who's empowered to have a say in design in an organization. Um, you know, before you might've had, you know, designers working in a silo and then passing that off to others. And so it's, it's sort of a way to, uh, bring design more deeply integrated into an organization's operations. And then for TikTok, it's, you know, who's empowered to kind of be a creator by, by giving them these tools, by, uh, making distribution more broadly available, like how do you how do you make more people or how do you empower more people to be creators? And so that's kind of the way that that I've sort of thought about that. And you can tell all those all those companies do it in different ways, but it's sort of a check that I like to do on companies. It's like, is this is this company, um, um, you know, enabling something broader, uh, enabling empowerment for its end user base, and um, and adding value that way. That's a really, that's a really interesting idea because then it, you know, you, you go into this flywheel effect that businesses have where if they expand and if their whole marketing point, like you said, is to expand their market, then it just leads to more like Nike, Nike is a perfect example, which is why, which is why I brought that up because it's, you know, everyone's an athlete. And as soon as you put on the Nike clothes, you're an athlete, which then expands that reach even further. And so I just, I mean, I, I, I didn't hear about this idea until I read your post, which is why I'm glad, you know, we're, we're kind of fleshing this out. And then you mentioned three areas that you think are ripe for empowerment loops going forward or what you call empowerment loop placements. And the three areas are knowledge work, teaching and software development. So walk us through why you think those three areas are ripe for this empowerment loop. And then what, what would they look like inside those areas? What would, what would empowerment loops look like inside knowledge work, teaching and software? Yeah. Um, so, you know, I think that, you know, maybe knowledge work and, and software development, let's kind of take those, you know, in the, in the same vein. Um, yeah. I think that there's, there are still a lot of silos that exist in large organizations. Um, I think, you know, people who often people who are building early stage technology products and who are investing in them might for, might forget about that. Honestly, they sort of see, you know, five people, 10 people, 20 people on the team who have full context about what's happening in an organization where it's easy to adopt new solutions and easy to, to bring new products in, you forget that in these large global organizations where there still has not been sort of the, the impact of digitization um, on, you know, many of the fortune 500 fortune 2000, you know, whatever you want to, whatever you want to call it there, there still has, there's still a, an older kind of mentality, both to the way that solutions are adopted to the culture, et cetera. And so, you know, what Figma has done has, uh, at least in, in its core market today and expanding into more of that um, incumbent world has brought design to the forefront and not only elevated the influence of designers and design thinking in an organization, but has given more context broadly across the organization to what design means and why it matters for a company. I think software development is the exact same, the exact same thing. Um, and there's, there's probably a million different ways to to go about this and to you know elevate the influence, elevate the value of software developers in so many of these large incumbent organizations, um, while at the same time giving everybody across the organization more context for why software is important, why uh, why it makes sense to to the company to to bring that in. So I mean I think that's kind of how I would think about that from the software perspective is quite analogous to the design perspective with uh, with what Figma has done. Okay. So where do you, so when you, when, when you're looking at companies, cause I'm, I'm, I'm trying to think about this in terms of your framework when analyzing companies. So I'm trying to put my, put my, mm -hmm. you know, feed inside 
Brett choose here and say, when you look at a potential investment for TechNexus, um, you know, how do you, how do you discern if a company has, you know, like this empowerment loop in a area that's not preconceived or that's not, you know, already decided like Nike, we know in apparel, you can have empowerment loops and stuff like that. But how do you, how do you then judge that? Like, is it, is it qualitative? Is, is there anything quantitative you can look at or? Um, you know, I think it's largely qualitative, um, but I do think that there is a quantitative element to it uh, for certain companies. So, you know, I think you can, you know, take a, you know, maybe a generic example, a marketplace that's focused on um, maybe peer-to-peer teaching, um, you know, peer-to-peer meaning, hey, can we create a marketplace for fitness instructors or nutritionists or, uh, or cooks or just people who have some skill who are not traditionally um, involved in doing that, that might not be their profession, but they know something about it. They're passionate about it. You create a, you create a mechanism for them to get distribution for their content, for their teaching. So great. You've sort of empowered that group of people to, uh, to go out and show their skills to the world as they build an audience. Some of those members are going to realize, Hey, we can, you know, I can also jump on this, I'm initially a consumer. I can jump on this as a, as a creator and uh, convey something about what, what I'm good at and share my skills that way. So I think there's like, there's that, that feedback loop sort of like you talked about with Nike, like, Hey, is this, is this something if it's, you know, uh, serves sort of both sides of, of yeah. the, of the marketplace of the business where you can get some, some flow back and forth between the two. Um, and then I think just empowerment more broadly. Yeah. Is this something that, this maybe even gets away from like the empowerment loop side of it, but is it, mm-hmm. am, am I empowering the end user to be more impactful, to be more effective? And I think that's where that's such, that's the great thing about sort of bottoms up software companies that are distributed into enterprises without having to go through centralized kind of CIO or IT organizations is that the people that are buying them are the, you know, the end users, they're the ones that are seeing the value out of the product. And so can you convey um, in some, quantitative way and ROI sort of fashion, like uh, from the product that the end user is getting a ton of value out of, out of what you're doing. So I think at the core is almost an obvious thing to say, right? Like, Hey, does the, does the product create value for the user? But I think focusing on that sort of um, yeah, is a, is maybe just a helpful mechanism to, to start with. Yeah. But I mean, it's kind of funny, right? So coming from a more traditional, let's call it a value investor based standpoint, that question might not be asked right away, which is, I mean, you think it's a no brainer, right? Like, is this product, is this service actually creating value for the end customer? But if you're focused on purely the quantitative, you might just miss it. Um, you know, like it could, it, it could be a statistically cheap company, but if the product sucks and the users hate it and it's cumbersome, then probably reason why it's cheap. So I just, I just think it's important to realize that like, it does sound like it's a no brainer, but like, I find myself having to ask that question, like, does this actually provide value and create value for the customer? Yeah, no, absolutely. And I think you're, you're exactly right. And it's easy to focus as well. You know, if you're, if you don't focus on that to, to focus on other attributes that might be extremely valuable assets, you know, it might be extremely valuable as an enterprise software company to have this great sales, uh, great sales organization, a, a super efficient sales force, um, and use that as a, as maybe the primary thing to say, Hey, this is why we should, should invest. They're just a, a great sales organization or, you know, the distribution that a, a consumer product might have might be really impressive. Um, but at the end of the day, it does, you're right, come back to that core value proposition and those assets, you know, a great 
distribution channels or a great sales force, the effectiveness of those things will uh, undoubtedly erode over time um, if the core value proposition of the service or the product isn't there. Yep. And let's let's shift now to this idea of enablers versus growers. It's, it's the second to last um, kind of big topic I wanted to touch on. And just again, kind of like we did with the empowerment loops, what's, what is an enabling company and what's a, what's a growing company? Yeah, I think a good maybe example to, to use to explain this, and I wrote this piece with a good friend of mine, Gon Sanchez, who, who writes uh, the Seed Table newsletter and thinks about this stuff a lot. Um, it, a good company to sort of think about this sort of spectrum is Shopify. So Shopify uh, is a company that enables its customers, its users to build an online storefront, to get online for the first time. And so that's just very much an, an enablement of, of a new business, a new business mm -hmm. model. Um, and and that, that's extremely valuable, right? Like Spotify rode that to billions and billions and billions of, of market cap, super happy customers, um, a really great brand, trusted brand in the market. Um, so that's kind of the enabler piece to it. You've got a company like Shopify or a company like Stripe, who is kind of this pure infrastructure company um, yeah. that is just... Enabling, enabling companies to start, enabling users to do something. And then I think the, the grower aspect is kind of gets to further down on that spectrum where, you know, you are going to say, great, we're, we're already this infrastructure player. We're already enabling this. But in order to stave off competition, uh, we're going to take one of three actions to help not only, not only help you exist, but help you grow. And that's, you know... Right ending up driving distribution to, to customers. And that's what Shopify has done recently with its shop app is saying, okay, infrastructure might not be enough to continue this growth and to stave off all competition. So we need to play the flip side of this as well and drive distribution to our customers. Um, you know, facilitating business model uh, evolution is another thing that we talk about in there. So again, not only existing, but uh, helping those customers over time uh, create entirely new business models uh, around, around their core offering. And then the, the third piece that, that we talked about there is kind of shifting risk from, uh, from the customers to the platform. And I can talk about kind of examples with all of those, but, yeah. but that's kind of the, the crux of it is like the, the enablement piece is kind of that pure play infrastructure. And then the, the growth piece is what you can layer on top of that to, uh, to make sure that nobody kind of cuts, cuts into your customer base with, with a better value proposition. Um, because infrastructure, you know, as, as great as a technology, as great as a product um, that something like Shopify is or that Stripe is, you know, a lot of that infrastructure gets maybe commoditized over time. So how do you continue to grow with your customers is, is maybe one way to think about it. Yeah. So then do you want to dive right into an example about that in terms of just staving off competitors and how, how you can you know, grow, grow, grow. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So I think, you know, Shopify shop app is, is maybe a good one that, that gets at, um, the need to eventually drive distribution to, to those customers and own the consumer demand on the flip side of it. So I think that's one piece of it. Um, you know, business model evolution is interesting. So the, the example that we use there is a company called Phoenix, which, uh, has sort of come at this financial services market and said, okay, the, you know, how do we um, make it so that our customers, SaaS companies is, is sort of the, the end user that Phoenix sells to, how do we make it so that they not only don't have to go to Stripe, but they can become Stripes themselves. And so kind of right. taking that next step and saying, great, we're going to just give you customer the ability to do this commoditized thing 
um, yourself. You can roll your own thing super easily without having to pay the, the fees to the infrastructure provider, et cetera. Yep. And so that's, you know, that's one piece of it is, is kind of Phoenix turning its customers into mini stripes themselves. Um, hmm. So that's interesting. And then the other thing that we talked about in there is sort of shifting risk from, from the customer to the platform. Um, yeah. And so, you know, I think an example of that could be uh, small business lending that you see a company like Square rolling out or a company like Stripe rolling out. Um, so that's kind of one of Stripe's uh, growth avenues is, is the, the credit that they, that they have and that they offer to, uh, to companies on their platform. So I think Square and Stripe are good examples there. Um, you know, I think income share agreements are a way that that has sort of been done um, in, in, uh, in a way that like universities maybe playing the role of pure infrastructure provider. It's better aligned and more aligned incentives with, yep. with kind of the end user. Um, and then like the iBuyers as well, sort of those real estate companies that are saying, Hey, you know, we're not just going to uh, enable a marketplace for you to kind of search, uh, home prices and understand all that, find a realtor, et cetera. Um, we're actually going to step in, assume the risk, uh, of the house and front you the cash to, uh, to be able to go and move on with your life. And so yeah. I think those are a few ways of moving from kind of that just pure play enablement layer to helping customers grow um, yeah. on the back of that. So then if we look at it from the term of where we want to invest the idea, I mean, on, on, on first glance, just from, just from this, you know, brief, brief description, stuff like that. I, I feel like I want to just invest in these enablers and, 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 and only invest in enablers just because of the power um, you see in Shopify and square. Is there, is, 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 is there any way that you kind of differentiate? Like, do I, you know, do you only invest in enabling companies? Do you invest in growers? And then, and then how do you decide which one is better? Like if you, if, you know, gun to your head, if you had to choose. Yeah. I mean, it's a, it's a super tough question. I think you're right. Like all the companies that I just mentioned there are, are super strong companies. Um, yeah. So, you know, I think the, the enablement piece you're right is, is so, uh, so important. And if you have your hooks in early on in a company, if you're Stripe and you go from, if you just you create the ability for this business to even exist through Stripe Atlas and through taking right. their first payments online, like the, the, um, the inertia to actually pull that customer away from you over time is going to be extremely strong. Same yeah. thing with Shopify. If you're sort of, in their ecosystem with, you know, all of the customer data that exists there, all of the different integrations, and you've sort of built their the technology stack on top of Shopify, it's hard to see how companies move away from that over time. Yep. So I think you're exactly right. It's like, how do you, that, that's an extremely, extremely powerful um, piece to it. I think where, where it gets interesting and where maybe the, the grower element uh, is a great place to invest is when, it's being done um, in a way that, you know, those, those infrastructure players, those enabling companies can't really replicate without shifting their focus away from their core business. Um, hmm. And, you know, I think that's, uh, and so, you know, who knows if, if Stripe will or could or um, has any interest in taking a company like Phoenix head on and sort of, uh, letting, you know, letting that go. But, but I think there's, I mean, I agree. I think there's, there's places for both and there's, there's tons of opportunity uh, in both areas uh, just kind of context dependent probably. Yeah. It's, I mean, it's, it's after, after I asked that, I'm like, that, that's just probably such a loaded, it's probably just such a loaded question where it's, you know, there's no, there's no right or wrong yeah. answer, I guess, at that point. Well, you see, I mean, you see like, you know, some companies, um, some companies are 
probably some incumbents are probably going to be able to make that transition and eventually yeah. offer not only the infrastructure piece, but the, the growth element as well. I mean, I think, I don't know the specifics. Um, I think Zillow has been relatively, uh, maybe I'm completely wrong, but I think they've been relatively successful in sort of um, in kind of taking that approach and moving from uh, moving into grower mode. Um, but you yeah. know, I think some companies will be more successful than others. Yeah, no, it's, I mean, it's just such an interesting framework to think about incumbents versus disruptors and, and, and kind of who's, who's, who's going to win and kind of how they're, how they're doing the playbook. I want to end our conversation with, you know, I guess it's, it's, it's kind of scratching my own itch here in terms of how to identify underrated markets, right? It's a, it's a, it's a catchy title and it's something anyone as investors, whether you're a value investor or venture investor, that's your goal, right? You're trying Mm -hmm. to find underrated markets where not many people are fishing. So you can find all the good fish. And I want to frame this discussion um, from, a, from a quote from the article where you say, venture capital is an exercise in funding a future that is radically different from the present. And you know, the only way to find really these underrated markets is to imagine an alternative future that others, others can't see. So another loaded question in the spirit of loaded questions is, how do you find these, Brett? Like, how do you find underrated markets? Yeah, I, you know, I think... Um... That's, that is the holy grail for anybody. If you, you know, if you find underrated markets and then you extrapolate that to the companies that are going to win those markets or the underrated companies in those markets, that's a, you know, a recipe for success that, that I wish, yeah. uh, wish I had and, and could, could pass <laughs> off to others. Um, but you know, the, the way that I've, I've sort of thought about it and just going back and, and using a bunch of examples from companies that I've sort of, uh, you know, looked at over the years and, and studied over the years, I think there's, there's kind of, three elements that I've sort of um, said are, you know, potentially interesting ways to start to identify these underrated markets. And the first is sort of, does the audience skew young? And young is in sort of air quotes there. It could be young people. I think that, um, you know, a lot of times companies uh, get get their start on, um, you know, with young consumers. Uh, it could be young in the sense of, uh, serving startups like uh, Stripe, for example, to go back to them, they you know they started by uh, by serving these customers that were young and and really young is a stand-in for kind of just unattractive to to incumbents. Um, hmm. It wasn't worth the time of an incumbent payment provider to go and um, step by step take on all these different startup companies, but right. that formed the foundation for for a lot of the success that that Stripe has had. Um, yep. The the other piece is like uh, a gap between monetization and engagement. Um, so anytime that uh, engagement outpaces monetization, I think that's a, a good recipe to, to sort of look at. And it's, I mean, it's, it's hard to find those. And I think those gaps tend to close relatively quickly, but yeah. um, you know, I think that existed with uh, you know, with Facebook back in the day um, and can talk about maybe some, some examples there of how that played out. I think it's, you know, a market that I spent a lot of time looking at and interested in both as a consumer and, and an investor to a degree as well is like the podcasting market um, how, how large that has the potential to become, um, even though, you know, monetization is nowhere near, uh, as nowhere near close to, uh, you know, things, other, other forms of media. So, right, right. um, that's, that's kind of the second piece. And then the third piece, and we can dive into any of these, uh, as it makes sense, but the third piece is sort of these artificial barriers that hold back scale in the market that could be, you know, monopolies that exist that could be sort of these, these cultural things that are maybe not the ideal representation of, of how a product or service or market should be. Um, but I think there's, there's sort of these um, artificial barriers to scale that could be potentially unwind given the right circumstances that 
uh, that you kind of have to look for as well. So those are the three the three elements that that I've sort of outlined in the piece and tend to look for. Yeah, I want to I want to pry a little bit more about this idea of a gap between monetization and engagement. Uh, like I agree, you know, podcasting is a big one. I mean, we saw with Joe Rogan's deal the amount of monetization that can be possible in podcasting, and even just add add dollar spend, the difference between the podcast and, and, and any other platform. But from a, from a company perspective, how do you go and analyze that gap? And then I guess assess how wide that gap is and then how, how you can close that over time. And maybe we can talk about this. You mentioned Facebook, but another company that's interesting that's actually going around the value investing circle is Twitter, where you've mm-hmm. got this huge engagement on Twitter, but they still haven't cracked the code for monetization. So maybe, maybe you have thoughts on that, that we can just kind of pull at there. Yeah. Um, yeah. So uh, Twitter is, Twitter is such an interesting company because it's, it's tough. Like at a certain point you sort of almost lose, lose faith that they've had enough chances. It seems like to, (laughs) to, to deliver on that, um, to deliver on that, that, uh, gap. Um, so I think you sort of, you can maybe give a company a benefit of the doubt initially, and then you start to say, okay, is this ever, is this a company that's ever going to be able to, to figure it out? I mean, I think like, there's, there's so many examples uh, with Twitter of, you know, they've been the primary enabler for discovery of, um, of podcasts. Like that's been something that has written on the, the interest graph of Twitter. Same thing yep. now with uh, things like newsletters and, and sort of this, this um, explosion of individual content creators uh, putting, putting newsletters out there. And Twitter owns this super powerful kind of interest graph that nobody else has, but has just not been able to do it. And, again, at a certain point, you sort of start to maybe lose faith in their ability to do that. Yeah. Um, but, but I do think, you know, what you're looking at is something kind of interesting. And I, I think of this, the, the term I always use for this is business model leverage, where okay. um, is, is sort of my, is my core product or service uh, something that gives me the ability to uh, really scale into adjacent verticals uh, or adjacent use cases or adjacent parts of kind of wallet share with the consumer in a way that helps that I can do it while, you know, maintaining margins, maintaining kind of the core economics of the business. Um, and, you know, that would be, that would seem to be something that Twitter, if they were executing at a high level would, would be able to, to kind of do because that right. engagement there is there because, you know, the, the sort of uh, the tweet to podcast to newsletter, it's the same, it's the same people creating those things. It's the same yeah. sort of atomic unit of interest. Like, I'm probably going to be interested in, I mean, I'm, I've listened to your podcast. I follow you on Twitter and I read your newsletter. Like those, those three things are all kind of one in the same, um, yep. in terms of the interest, uh, the interest, um, kind of delivery. So, right. uh, that would seem to be the perfect, the perfect fit where I can yep. just continue to dive deeper into more precise versions of this user's interest and offer, um, content and products that align with that. And they just, they haven't been able to, to really do that. Whereas, you know, a company that I talk about all the time is, is Spotify and they've been probably, you know, more successful or at least seem to be on a more successful path to do that with users where, yeah. you know, they sort of start with music and then they go to a podcast and everybody kind of knows that whole story. But what, what are all the other areas of audio that they can kind of get into? What are all the other services to, uh, attract and retain attention from users that they can get into while maintaining or improving margins. And I think like companies like that certainly, certainly have elements of that to them. So I think it's sort of like, there's, there's probably two pieces to it, right? There's do these conditions exist for this company to uh, 
continue to scale into really attractive verticals uh, right. with you know the same users. And then the track record piece, like have they shown some ability to do that? Is there some evidence that they're actually going to be able to do that versus like the hope that exists with uh, with a product like Twitter? Um, yeah. So yeah, that, that, I guess that would be my my answer to that. Um, yeah. I'm not a Twitter Twitter shareholder, nor am I short Twitter. I just I, I just can't figure it out. So yeah. I, you know, it's a, it's a you mystery. and everybody else. Yeah, yeah, you and everybody <laughs> else. It's 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 kind of crazy though because it's like at one point, yes, you do have to start losing faith, but then you do have Jack Dorsey that he's this you know just savant of a of an entrepreneur what he did with square, square is my favorite squares yeah probably my favorite company yeah i mean i think it's an amazing company yeah um that 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 could that that has shown the exact ability to do what twitter needs to do right with yep. in terms of you know expanding and, and doing all this. yeah you're spot yeah. on that yeah. That's and square, yeah. It's squares, squares, this squares is perfect example. I mean, I'm a, I'm a, I'm a shareholder in square. And so, but, but, but they're a perfect example of this idea of, of doing things that don't scale. I just finished mm-hmm. the book, uh, the innovation stack by, I think it's Jim McKelvey. I don't know. I don't know if you've read that book, but it's, it's, it's incredible. And, you know, basically the whole idea of square was he, Jim owns this glass blowing studio and he couldn't accept Amex. And so they created Square for the little guy. And it's like, if you can do those things that, 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 that don't scale, and then you enable other businesses, like we talked about earlier, you enable these businesses to then accept cars, accept payments. It's not really a surprise that Square is where it is today. Yeah. And I have not read the book, but I'm familiar with the, the idea that he talks about of innovation stacks. And I think it's such a powerful kind of idea and, and thing to focus on. And they've executed on that so well, because I think what, what it kind of gets at uh, is sort of this, this really um, high level of adaptability and responsiveness to whatever a situation sort of throws at you. Um, and that's, that's kind of what they've, they've been able to do is build this entire ecosystem that, you know, they've, uh, they were able to be super nimble when, when this whole crisis hit because of the fact that they, you know, they own consumer demand on one side, they've done all those things that don't scale, like you said, on the other side with their merchants. And so they're just so, so tapped in and they've, they've delivered so much value to each of those constituents across the board, um, and integrated them so well together in terms of how that payments ecosystem kind of works that, um, that they've been able to be super responsive and nimble in response to, you know, the, the situation that we face. So yeah, it's a pretty, pretty amazing company. Yeah. And then just, just to kind of wrap up this idea on, on underrated markets, you mentioned, you kind of give us three areas where you think these markets could uh, emerge, spring up you video games, micro mobility, and then the creator economy. So video games, it's kind of pretty straightforward there, but micro mobility is interesting. So what do you mean by micro mobility? Yeah, I mean, I think most people um, sort of think of micromobility in, in terms of the headlines that they've seen micromobility companies like Lime and Bird and sort of just like associating that with shared um, shared scooters, basically. Um, you know, I think micromobility is much broader than that. It, it is a uh, this, this transformation, uh, transportation um, kind of modality that is whether it's shared or whether it's um, owned, it, it kind of creates a, a new way to move around cities. Uh, it creates new um, new freedom for for different people. And I think that sort of as uh, as our you know, may, we'll see if this comes to comes to pass. But you know, it's it's very much a a disruptive kind of technology. It sort of unbundles all the different ways that you might want to uh, 
to deliver value and do the job yep. to be done that, that yep. exists within transportation. And so um, I think that there's just sort of this, this cultural element that's existed for decades and decades that has been very car centric, um, both in cities and outside of cities that uh, over time as, as uh, electrification um, improves uh, on that side of things, as we continue to become more conscious of uh, environmental impact that we're having with, with how we move around, um, I think all of these things sort of just tend, trend towards um, us being a little bit more uh, uh, more focused on that and moving right. away from purely being you know car based to uh, being a little bit more precise with uh, how we access and own um, these sort of transportation modalities. So that would kind of be what I was I guess getting at with that. Yeah, video games, kind of kind of similar thing. Like I think uh, st still to this day, despite the fact that video games are so popular and so well monetized, they're probably still under monetized. The user base is still sort of, you know, tends to be younger. Um, and there are, you know, cultural barriers that have, have kind of held back scale. I think that most people still fail to see the value that video games or just the, the, the mechanics of video games can create in things like education, in things like healthcare, um, and in things like sort of just social, um, social interactions that people can have through them. So right. I think started to see that shift a little bit, probably accelerate in recent months because mm -hmm. of, uh, just because of the factors that exist in, in the, the current, uh, the current environment. But, um, but that would be, yeah, definitely another one there. Got it. And then the creator economy, I guess that goes back to this idea of knowledge work. Is yeah, that, is I mean, that I think, kind of the way to think about it? Yeah, exactly. And it, it's kind of a, you know, a hot thing in, in, uh, in a you know small subset probably in the broader universe of of Twitter where you know people are looking at all of these different newsletter creators and podcasters and people uh, creating videos and monetizing through that kind of yeah. um, all of that all of that different stuff but you know I think it's it is still um, probably under monetized it's still something that is scoffed at maybe by by the broader public um, mm -hmm. and it's it, it probably represents something a little bit more fundamental which is uh, the you know, again, sort of this, um, uh, I guess, unbundling a little bit in this case of the firm and in a way that you can now sort of access all the different things, piece that, that together to uh, to build a business around yourself. Whereas before right. you may have needed to join a media company or join an investment firm or, mm -hmm. uh, you know, name the, name the industry there, fitness instructor, join a gym. Like you yep. can now kind of piece all of the tools uh, together to, to start and, and grow those businesses to pretty significant scale. And so I think that can, you know, that, that should hopefully have uh, a long-term impact. And I think we're, we're betting on this with a lot of the investments that we make that um, that will have a long-term impact on the dynamism in the broader economy and in, you know, driving up levels of entrepreneurship and, and hopefully um, driving economic growth and progress for the long-term. Yeah. And you mentioned before, before we even hit record that you listened to Turner Novak's podcast, the conversation I had with him, and he's a perfect example of this. He's, you're not, you know, he's, he's, he's your atypical venture investor where, where did he get to start? It was that newsletter. It was creating that fantasy VC portfolio and then getting his information out there. And he didn't take the standard, you know, two years at Goldman and then go somewhere else like that. And it's just, it's just cool to see the democratization of people's abilities to rise upwards if that makes sense absolutely yeah i mean i think he's a he's a perfect example and i think it's a it's a it's great like as this expands out it's, it's not just going to be you know we, we we've sort of had this wave of 
audience and then you get paid by some brand to promote their products. And maybe that was like the first tier of it, but I think it, it is so much deeper than that. It's people like Turner in the investment space. It probably touches every single industry that you could, that you could think of almost. Um, and so, yeah, I think it's, it's a really exciting. Yeah. It's just, uh, it's, it does show how much potential there is. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. And it's, and it's, and it's one of those things where, it's, 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 it's only going to get more exciting as, as, as the technology improves and as people younger, younger people just continue to learn at a faster rate and then produce at a faster rate, which then enables them to receive feedback even, even quicker and to develop those skills even faster, which is exciting. Um, mm-hmm. You know, Brett, we, we've, we, we've gone over an hour talking about all of your, you know, most popular articles, according to me and, 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 and just kind of picking your brain. And i couldn't thank you enough for, for taking the time. Um, I do want to finish up with a couple closing questions. And so, like I said, I'm going to put your Substack in the show notes so people can go and subscribe to that. I highly recommend you do. Where else can people go to find out more about you and the content you make? Yeah, definitely. So uh, Twitter would be probably the main one. So I'm at Brett Bivens on Twitter. So that's, uh, that's one piece of it. And then I think one of the things that uh, definitely flows flows through all of this is the the writing that I do and, and the tweeting that I do is largely you know from the work that that I do day to day with with TechNexus um, and so that's maybe TechNexus.com would be another place to go to check out kind of what we do and some of the companies that we've invested in I think it's always interesting to sort of go through and, and look at that so those would be two places that uh, that I give you there got it and then the last question if you could have dinner with one person past or the present. It doesn't have to be finance, doesn't have to be investing or anything. Who would it be and why? Yeah, um, I, th- I thought about this. I mean, there's, there's so many different, there's so many different. Uh, one, one that just popped to mind, and this wasn't actually even going to be my initial answer, but yeah. one, that, one that just popped to mind would be, would be Michael. Um, you know, I'm a huge basketball fan. I've never been a Chicago Bulls fan, never been a Michael Jordan fan. Um, but, uh, but I think that would just be a, a fascinating uh, discussion to have um, and, and to, to sort of understand what makes a person like that. Um, you know, everything that he's accomplished is, you know, not, not achievable by most of us in basketball or in any field. Like, yep. you know, not, not, it's, it's very unique to be the best ever at such a, such a competitive thing uh, that so right. many people are vying for. Right. Uh, so it's not like there's maybe, there's probably not even any lessons that I could offer be more effective in any part of my life. But uh, I think after watching all the documentaries about him and everywhere uh, that came out earlier this year, I think it'd be kind of interesting to sit down with him for, for a dinner. So I'll go with, uh, go with Michael Jordan. Nice. Yeah. I was, I'm, I'm, I'm trying to go through the last dance. I'm, I'm, I think I've got a couple more episodes left, but it's, it's such a good, such a good documentary. Um, Yeah. It's great. Yeah. But awesome. Well, Brett, thanks so much for coming on the show. I look forward to talking to you again and I wish you the best of luck at tech nexus and all the awesome things you're doing on your Substack. Perfect. Thanks, Brandon. I appreciate you having me on.